Okay. Alrighty. Well, um, as I think most of you are aware of what we've been doing in Sunday school for the past, well, now two weeks, is we're kind of uh, in the middle between our study of systematic theology, which we just wrapped up, and what we're going to move on to study, uh, looks like next week, is we're going to move on to biblical theology and a study of biblical theology and redemptive history and, and, and that very large subject. So in the meantime, we've taken the last couple of weeks, we took last week and now this week, at looking at the topic of marriage, looking at the topic of marriage. And the reason I decided to speak on this topic is because I had uh, recently read through a book by Jay Adams on the topic of marriage. And to me, the book was so helpful. It was so um, edifying and, and, and clarifying, really, a lot of the basic issues with marriage and problems in marriage that I thought, um, as I read it, as I said, the book was intended for uh, biblical counseling and restoring people's marriages who have issues. But I thought, as I read through it, that everything in this book is what everybody needs to know who is married and who is going to be married. And so I thought that it would be good just to share this information with you guys as just um, helpful, needed information that we all need to know for our marriages. So what we looked at last week is... Um, really was just the introductory material to his book. Um, We looked at the positive presentation that he gives for what Jay Adams, and if you're not familiar with who Jay Adams is, he's he's kind of like the father of of biblical counseling, Uh, many years of experience, and very highly respected, good reformed brother. But as he studies the book, uh, the, the, uh, the topic of marriage in the Bible, he lays forth what he says is one of the most foundational, um, practical reasons for why God instituted the marriage relationship. And can anybody recall what he said was really the foundational reason for why God says that he instituted marriage? Can anybody recall that? It was bad for man to be alone. That's right. It's not good for man to be alone. So what he's taking from that is, is there was obviously an, an imperfection in the situation for Adam in that he was alone. Adam uh, was, was set up with uh, a sense of loneliness. And so what Jay Adams is saying is God recognized that. He created woman for companionship. And as we looked at other texts, we see that uh, the companionship wasn't only to be fulfilled in Adam as the husband, but we see also that companionship and the need to provide companionship for your spouse goes both ways. The husband um, is there to, to uh, fulfill the need for companionship in his wife, and the wife, of course, especially in Genesis 2.18, was created to fulfill a companionship for her husband. Now, um, Jay Adams also uh, gave to us, and I relate to you, what he is saying is what he's found to be the most helpful um, phrase, in a sense, to summarize what he thinks that um, biblical marriage is to be uh, thought of and recognized of as He called it a covenant of companionship, a covenant of companionship. And I found that to be helpful because it's it's not only reiterating what we just uh, discussed, is that that foundational reason for marriage is to provide something for husband and wife, a, a need for companionship. But by adding the word covenant of companionship, um, that's 
just bringing the connotation of the um, seriousness uh, of the um, the sacred nature of this responsibility and duty and commitment that we have in our marriages before God to fulfill that need in our spouse. So uh, marriage being a covenant of con- companionship is, is, I think, a very helpful way to think about it. We looked at a couple of the classic passages on marriage. We looked at Ephesians 5. We looked at 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, we went to those examples just to see how Scripture presents some of the practical ways in which we are to provide that companionship um, for our wives, for our husbands. And we looked at and also noted the reason that we're to provide these things to our spouses so that they won't be left open um, for temptation and, and the temptation to seek uh, this companionship and to seek this fulfillment in other things or other people. So um, this is really good uh, to keep in the forefront of your mind the necessity for you to be fulfilling your husband or your wife as, as a way of protecting them from seeking what they are made to need in, in something else or in even someone else. So all of that, as I said, is kind of preparatory work for his book because as he moves on, as the book's entitled um, Solving Marriage Problems, what he does is he lays out in his book um, some of the most common problems in marriage that he's come across in his, I, I, I should have looked at 40, 50 years of marriage counseling and pastoral counseling. What are the most common issues? What are the most common sins and therefore problems that come up in marriages? And, and we can look at how to biblically address those, those problems. And so um, I thought I would just preface what we're going to do today by saying that identifying problems in marriage Um, isn't a simple task. Um, It's not a simple task because of the complexity of of our lives and of uh, marriage in in general. Our sin is not ever or not usually just a singular thing. It's always multifaceted. And and I think by the time uh, that we've gotten to a place where we're able to swallow our pride and seek for help, um, normally by that time, the leaven of sin in our lives has spread and caused Um, additional problems, more problems than we originally started out with. And so uh, by the time we're seeking help and gotten to the place where we we think we can actually uh, cry for help, is uh, usually there's many problems that are interwoven and it's not simple. So I just preface that um, because what we're going to do today is I'm really going to separate, and Jay Adams has separated some of these issues into individual issues, and we'll look at them individually um, but in real life, it's usually not this simple, right? So just qualify, qualify this task for us. So um, the first thing, and, and, and this is a, a, a reality that I mentioned last week, but out of all the, the problems you could group, or Jay Adams is, is grouping, the majority of problems that he sees as being a result of people entering into the marriage covenant with unbiblical concepts of what marriage is supposed to be in the first place, right? So people are coming together with already unbiblical ideas, unbiblical expectations, unbiblical hopes, and um, just unbiblical concepts of what marriage is actually going to be like. So in a sense, they're coming into it um, 
almost uh, with just just set up to have problems because they're entering into marriage with just um, all of these different uh, unbiblical concepts. So what's the most common error that he addresses? And he says that it's this, the most common problem that he comes across or what is really the root of, of, of problems is he says it's this, the widespread notion that love and therefore marriage is simply an emotional or romantic act. Love is simply something that is felt. Right? So people are coming into their marriages um, believing that love, the concept of love, is something that is predominantly something that's felt. It's an emotional thing. And, and that's, what, that's what they're coming into the marriage believing. And it's because of that uh, faulty conception of what love is is that many husbands and therefore many wives are dissatisfied. They become dissatisfied with their marriage because they don't feel like they love their spouses anymore. They don't feel that love anymore. In a sense, you could say that the honeymoon stage wears off, right? And um, even marriages that started off strong uh, were carried by that emotional high and excitement of romance. But over time... And maybe even quickly that that sensation is lost. And the result of that is, uh, well, a wide range of sinful responses could be the result of of that. But, you know, there's always going to begin to be this separation, this distancing between husband and wife as a result of uh, people not knowing how to deal with the fact that they don't feel like they're in love anymore. So... That's the, the common predicament. That's the common root that he's saying is at the, the root of so many problems. And he's doing pastoral. This is biblical pastoral counseling in the church. So he's saying this is problems in the church. This isn't like secular, you know, counseling outside in the world. And this is the problem he's saying is the most common problem inside the church. And so what's the answer to that unbiblical concept of marriage and thinking that that's what love is? Well, here's a quote um, from Jay Adams. He says, The Bible nowhere makes romantic love a ground or basis for marriage. In fact, like most of the marriages in the history of mankind, it allows for marriages to be made by the family. So what's his point there? His point is that there's many biblical examples of um, marriages not being arranged or, or, or being arranged by family members by parents, and when those the husband and wife are brought together, even under those circumstances, they are held and being held to the exact same duties and exact same requirements by God to love each other, even though they may not even know each other in one sense. So that's interesting, right? So he's saying the answers, the, the biblical uh, view of love and the biblical call to love your husband and to honor your husband, and it, all of these things can be done even if you don't even know your spouse. You can still love biblically, and, you, and you're accountable to God to love biblically, even in that extreme, what we would consider extreme circumstances. That's, that's very, very interesting. I, I noted as well that the Bible deals with and, and, and tells us how to love um, unbelievers if we're married to an unbeliever, right? And so in the same sense, you could be married to somebody who has become very and may actually be very unlovely to you, undesirable to you, but the Bible tells you how to love them in such a way 
that you can, in fact, fulfill your responsibility before God and be obedient to him and, and glorify God in your marriage, even to an unbeliever. See, so that's good news that, that the word of God has the answers on how to love, um, even if we don't feel like it. So um, what is biblical love then if it's not simply a feeling? Um, biblical love is something that you show. Biblical love is an action. Biblical love is a commitment um, that you make. And the biblical model given to us of love is at its foundation, it is a self-giving love, a sacrificial love. The, the biblical examples for that might be what? What biblical um, examples maybe come to your mind as you think about how the Bible sets forth this concept of love? What does biblical love look like? And maybe what may be an example in the Bible of... Yes, sir, I see Brother Mike back there. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Oh, that's a good text. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you want to turn there, Mike? I didn't... I actually wasn't even thinking of that text, but I should, right? Isn't that the, the love chapter? Isn't that... There's something very interesting going on in that section, too. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking like primarily like starting at verse 4, right? Love is, it kind of defines love. In a sense, love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, which is kind of the aspect that I'm, I'm honing in on there. It's a selfless love. Um, it's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. I'm going to have to remember that text as we move on because that's, I didn't have that, but that's definitely relevant to something we're going to look at. Love um, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The biblical model of self-love or, or, or selfless love is self-giving love. I, what came to my mind was like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Right? Christ uh, gave himself up for the church. Now, what's interesting about that, and, and, and the reason I think it's important as we think about our marriages, is that God did this not when we were lovely. Right? God did this not because we added to him. Right? But like Romans 5.8 tell us, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us in this way. Now that becomes very relevant to our marriages um, when it comes to what the original premise was, is that a lot of people don't love their husbands or don't love their wives anymore because they don't feel like loving them, or maybe their husband or wife isn't lovely. But the picture of biblical love is a sacrificial love that's not based on the loveliness of the recipient Right? It's a self-giving self that is not even in one sense looking for something in return. Right? That would, that's going to love whether there is or isn't reciprocation. So if, that, if that's the answer to the misconception of what biblical love is, uh, how do we practically live this out? If, if you're not feeling, if you don't feel like loving your spouse... Um, if you don't have that emotional feeling, well, what are you to do? Well, I just 
listed it out in the way that Jay Adams lists a lot of these answers out to, and that's with the put-off, put-on um, paradigm of Ephesians 4 and Colossians, where here you have to put off what is the selfish motive for unbiblical love, where you're only faithful, you only love your spouse if you're going to get a good feeling out of it, right? If you're going to get that loving, warm feeling. That's the only way that you're going to love somebody is if you um, selfishly have this nice feeling about it. You put that off and you put on obedience to God by a selfless giving love to your spouse regardless of emotional feelings or what they give you in return. That's what you put on. You put on obedience to God in a sense because God commands you to love your spouse in these ways. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's the, here's the good news about this kind of obedience in your marriage is that if you do obey God in this way and selfless, selflessly love your spouse, even though you don't feel like it or you don't think that they're worthy, the blessing of this, it will be renewed emotions for that spouse. That's the, that's the interesting thing. And so if you're to give yourself over to serving, to loving your spouse, even if you don't feel like loving them, if you deposit your time, if you deposit your service, if you just deposit your prayers into them, uh, the principle from Matthew 6.21 carries over that where you have deposited your treasure, there your heart will be also. The, the feelings are a blessing that will come, right? But we don't do these things motivated out of seeking after that. But the blessing of, of emotions and having a love for your spouse emotionally should naturally follow if you are truly giving yourself over to love your spouse in all of the biblical ways that, that the Bible calls us for. Now, um, maybe another, another common misconception that that Jay Adams mentions here is he says that um, it's the idea, this faulty idea that both the husband and wife, uh, although being married, can continue to live out their own distinct lives just as, just as they always have before they got married. So it's another faulty misconception of what your life's going to be like being married is that you can get married, but life is going to, in a major way, just stay the same. Right Here's his examples. Men may come into marriage thinking that they can still live the carefree life of coming and going as they please, hanging with the boys, filling their days with fishing and bowling. <laughs> right? So that's obviously Jay Adams' examples, because I don't think that anybody would think that I would use fishing and bowling as misconceptions of what we should be doing all day with our time. He says this about wives. Wives may feel that they can continue to pursue their careers as if they were not truly married. Right? He's going to qualify that. Because he, do, he does allow for a woman to work outside of the home. He says this, But even in that, she must become husband-oriented in all that she does, including work she does outside the home. So everything is to be, uh, everything we do, the husband or the wife is to be, um, to be done in unison and of support of the other spouse, no matter what it is. We're to be um, others-oriented. So that's what he's saying as he says, he allows for a woman to work outside of the home as long as it does not interfere with her commitment to help and to serve her husband in whatever his calling in life is. So I think that's a helpful qualification, leaving the liberty open for women to work. Now, to have this divided 
um, to come into marriage with this divided, this separated kind of conception of marriage, what would you say, what biblical principle of marriage do you think this is violating? To come into the marriage thinking you can still live your own life, your husband lives his own life, right? And you, you're married, you know, you come together for dinner maybe, but you come into marriage with these two distinct lives and you think that's the way it's just going to continue. What, what biblical concept do you think maybe that might be violating? I think Amanda won. That's right. They're to become one flesh, right? Genesis 2.24, which um, protology, right? There's so much right there in Genesis about marriage. Um, the two are to become one flesh. And so obviously that's not just speaking about the sexual union, but it's, it's, it's a coming together of personhood in one sense. You two are, are, are coming together in one sense to become one person, and so that means that um, the husband is now, therefore, to put his wife above everyone else. He's to put his wife, is to have priority above his buddies, above his family, and as the scripture says, even above himself. He's to put his wife now in that place. And that's why I had Ephesians 5.28 in mind, because it said, Husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And so you see that oneness of person. To love your wife is to love yourself. Isn't that, isn't that interesting to, to show the oneness? I see you, Marlene. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, well, so biblically, you have your responsibility to love, let's say it's your husband who's an unbeliever, um, in all of these sacrificial ways, right? Despite the fact that he's most likely not going to reciprocate these things. You're to love him in these ways anyways for the glory of God, right? As you're going to do these things unto the Lord, even though most likely he's not going to reciprocate these things in a biblical fashion. And so I would say that example that you just brought up, I think that's probably the most difficult calling that anybody could have in life is to be married to an unbeliever just because it so distorts all of these beautiful pictures that we're painting here of how marriage is supposed to work. One side is most likely not going to do any of these things or be motivated to do any of these things or even has the ability to do any of these things. So, you know, those are the brothers and sisters that we need to be supporting and praying for and, and checking in on and, and loving them because... Um, I can't think of a more difficult calling than to have what that's that's the thing. You're still called to have this such of an intimate relationship with that person who is an unbeliever. It just is it, so difficult. It's difficult enough to have um, believers, right, for us to do these things as believers. Can you imagine um, the struggle of having to do these things with an unbeliever? It, it, it's a difficult calling, but it's a it's a calling nonetheless, right? First Peter three doesn't it doesn't give you an out. Right to, to leave these responsibilities and these callings. And I think you have the opportunity to most glorify God in that calling because it is the most difficult. Yes, sir? Uh, would it be right to say that marriage is a form of it's a calling to, to a servitude? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're called to serve you know, your spouse in whatever ways the Bible calls you to and whatever ways they need. Right, so it is definitely a a selfless a selfless commitment that you're making 
you know, we kind of, I quoted a few of like the uh, most general, you know, wedding vows. Maybe you could go review your wedding vows. What, what covenant did, explicitly did you make before God, right, to marry him? Like, go back and look at that language, and all of it is going to be self, selfless servitude language, right? That's what you committed to before God. And I know a lot of these uh, marriage vows and covenants that we make are very much, you know, very general, very common. So maybe we don't um, think about them, even when we're making them, as, as much as we should have. I know I didn't. I didn't know what I was saying. I just knew I wanted to get married. You know, I wasn't a believer when we got married, so that's my qualification. But regardless of the fact, I'm still bound to that, that vow that I made before God to love my wife as I promised God that I would and that I promised her I would. So... Um, that's that's where we're at, and and, it, and it's a beautiful thing to selflessly love, right? That's why I'm saying that's the biblical picture is to lay your life down for her good, right? That that is the picture of the gospel that we're that we're trying to paint here. So let me, let me hit one more okay. um, problem. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Go ahead. You, you asked biblical examples of the oneness that mm. we are to in marriage. Mm-hmm. I think there's a one that's much better than the two shall become one flesh, and that is the picture of the church is Christ is the head and the church, his people, are the body. Right. Now a head without a body or a body without a head is a monstrosity. Mm-hmm. So this organic unity with Christ is the best illustration of the oneness that we are supposed to have with our spouse because it transcends the physical and it gets to the the spiritual meaning of marriage. Mm-hmm. That is what it means to be one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the one flesh is a picture of that reality. Yes, ma'am. So if you're with a non-believer and they're asking you to do something that is not godly, then at that point, are you choosing God over them or are you, your servitude becomes for them? Right. That, that, is, the, uh, that is the line. That is the dividing line. When so you're, if they're asking you to do something that's ungodly, then that's when you're like... That's when you're like, I, I can't do that. I would love to lay my life down for you in any possible way that I can. I'll serve you in any way that I can. But when you ask me to sin against God, I, I can go no farther. So, yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's definitely the, the dividing line there. Yes, ma'am? I had a question along the same lines, um, but particularly, you know, like you have an unbelieving spouse, you know, say specifically a man, the husband... And when it comes to children, like, say, for example, say the husband, you know, is a good old witness, mm. and he ends up <coughs> taking his children to the kingdom hall. Mm. As a believing wife, where is her stand in that? Like, is that still submitting to ungodliness? And if she doesn't stand up for that, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the First Peter 3, there's a way that you would stand up with that, which is much authority as the Bible gives you without um, overriding his authority, right? Like, I don't think it would be okay for you to go, right, to a Jehovah's Witness church, right? I, I would definitely draw that line. And I don't know if you would have the ability to keep your children from going there if your husband was taking them there. But with all the influence that you would have over your children as the wife, you know, that's, when, that's where you would take your opportunity to pour into them as much truth as you possibly could, right? With as much, that's why I say that's the worst possible situation you could be in is to be, <clears throat> not worse in the sense of like you can't glorify God I mean most difficult 
I mean, look at what kind of problems like could come up like that. Very, I mean, it's probably very common for many people to be believers and their husbands maybe are into some kind of crazy heresy, you know, that their children are being taught every, you know, every week. And can you imagine, you know, can you imagine the struggle? So we are blessed, right, to be here <coughs> and to have our children under this teaching for sure. Um, let me see here. Let me, let me mention this one because obviously he... he we're still like in the main biggest problems, most common problems that he's saying that that violates this this one flesh picture of scripture, um, and this is allowing. And this is kind of a big big subject, big topic, but it's the allowing of unhelpful or even sinful influences into the marriage, and so the first bi- explicit biblical text to speak to this um, reality is the need for our becoming one flesh even to the point of having to exclude others, is again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. Now that's a helpful and important principle to understand because um, although as loving and as helpful as many in-laws want to be, um, we must make sure that, that we as the husbands are maintaining the leadership of the homes, right? And, and it's not our fathers and mothers. It's not her fathers and mothers. But we must, um, we must maintain uh, this biblical picture of the oneness between the husband and the wife. And, and it just obviously seems to be a common problem with the parents still remaining this, I wouldn't say necessarily sinful all the time, but it can be, definitely be unhelpful relationship that, causes seemingly many problems in people's people's marriages um obviously the the difficult the difficulty with the process of what they call leaving and cleaving right is just that we've both husbands and wives have have since birth we've had this dependency this relationship this intimacy with our parents that's not easy to leave right it's not easy to give up some of those things for the men we can grow very comfortable with the uh, the support of our f- parents, maybe even our fathers, maybe even specifically financial support that uh, can influence our decision making. Sometimes, maybe we uh, are, are tempted not to make a, a a godly or right decision just to appease our fathers. Right, the last thing we want to do is to to lose maybe or fear losing that financial support, and therefore we. Um, compromise and, and follow the will of our parents, if it, even if it's not helpful. For women, it seems difficult to fully entrust themselves to a new husband, a new man, over and against the faithful support that her parents have always provided. And so Dr. Adams is saying at that point, people need to, to understand the biblical picture that that child-parent relationship, in one sense, is a temporary relationship over and against the husband and wife relationship that is to be permanent. So they must be willing to submit themselves to the new relationship that they've covenanted to enter into that they're now going to be under their husband's leadership and not their parents' leadership, which can be a a touchy subject, right? Because that parent-child relationship, is, especially maybe with daughters, right? The parents want to hold on to that protective role. And that's good and that's natural, Right, so we must we must discern our ways through that 
um, in a helpful way. Um, I'm going to mention this other influence here that he said that can come into our marriages and will most likely eventually come up in your marriage uh, that may inadvertently cause trouble for this one flesh relationship that's to be maintained, and this is children. I think somebody mentioned children. But as much as a blessing as children are intended to be, many wives and many husbands even can put their children in a place that actually negatively affects that one flesh relationship in marriage that is to be the priority. And so Dr. Adams is just laying out what the priorities are to be. It's to be spouse. Your spouse is to have priority in your life and in your concern. Children second, and then your job. Right? That's what he's saying is the biblical um, perspective for priorities in these things because as he's seen, many men can put their jobs in front of their wives, in front of their children. And many wives have the tendency to put their children in front of their husbands. All of that uh, mispriority can affect the, that husband and wife relationship that is supposed to be there, right? And I can tell you from experience that that's difficult. That's, and I see why it's difficult, especially if, if the mothers are at home, maybe if they homeschool. They spend so much time with the children that that relationship is naturally good and strong, but um, that priority must be there for the husband, right? Even though that, that deep and good relationship is there with the children, she's to find her, her, her fulfillment in her husband and not in her children, right? That's, those are just real situations that come about. Um, there's many other numerous influences that can in infiltrate our marriages, um, the influences of the world, influences of media. I'll just point you to uh, Pastor Emilio's sermon on not loving the world to cover all of that, those things from 1 John 2.15. But I just thought I would reiterate on this point the principle of 1 Corinthians 15.33 uh, that says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so we just must be wary of the influences on our lives, whether they're um, our friends at work, co-workers, the world through, you know, movies, TV, radio, books, these kinds of things. The, the world has a drastically different view of what a happy marriage and a good marriage is. And we must constantly be renewing our minds by the word of God to what God's view of a, of a righteous and good marriage relationship is. Right? Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to comment that uh, I remember a while back I was walking at a store through a parking lot and I came across a magazine on the floor called Celebrate Divorce. It was a monthly magazine. Hmm. And I mean, I, hmm. you know, other than that, I didn't give too much eye to it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just I was just so surprised that, you know, mm -hmm. there would be a, a magazine with that title. <coughs> you know. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and so for the church, what we need to be weary of is like we can still agree I think this is what happened, just such a long process, but we can all agree that divorce is wrong and it should be last, right? Worst case scenario, we should avoid it at all costs. So we will always still affirm, right, that divorce is to be avoided, but that it's so common that I think our zeal for maintaining marriage can be um, contaminated in a sense. You know, like we just... 
we just it's so, it just becomes so common we're not even surprised we're not even surprised we're not grieved over it anymore we don't avoid it like we should we don't right fear that in our own marriages like we should just because it's i mean it's a sad thing it's it's terribly sad and 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 we're not sad as we should be about it right and we don't we don't work to avoid that as we should and and that's how i think the world just slowly influences us is whatever becomes common to the world becomes common to the church you know and we must protect we must protect ourselves in these things. So how I want it to end, um, maybe let's see if we can do this in five minutes. But I think this is one of the most important things. And I'll tell you why I think this is most important, because all of the things that we've talked about, we're all going to fail in them. We are going to not love our wives as Christ loved the church. Our wives are not going to honor and respect us and submit to us like the Bible calls them to. We're all going to fail in these things. So, because that's true, um, we must understand uh, the necessary reality of forgiveness and reconciliation for our marriages to work. Because we all know that we're going to fail, we all have failed, and so forgiveness, forgiveness has to be a common, um, practiced, learned, disciplined part of our marriages, if it's going to work. Because we're all going to fail at everything that I've that I've talked about here. So, um, as we talk, as you, as you think about reconciliation, biblical reconciliation is uh, one aspect of it. Is it's to be quick. It's to be quick. So, if you turn to Ephesians four, a couple of these aspects of of how forgiveness is to come about um, are mentioned here in verses twenty five and twenty six. A couple of really important principles. That, that certainly apply to marriage, are found in these verses. Ephesians 4.25, it says, Therefore, laying aside all, uh, all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So that's, that's where I'm just pointing to as that principle of... of the need to speak truth as far as bringing about reconciliation and how soon should we do that? Well, that we cannot let the sun go down on our anger. That's a helpful principle. I think we always, I know, I've known that verse, right, that principle for a long time. It's just helpful um, to, to, re, to remind you of the need to reconcile quickly. Um, so how exactly do these verses apply to marriage? Um, Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Well, who's a closer neighbor to you than your spouse? And so I think this is, in in fact, relevant to our marriages. And in the case of sins against each other in the marriage, is that the biblical response to sins committed against you is not silence, but it's speaking the truth to one another for for the purpose of reconciliation. Um, your spouse needs to know that they have sinned against you so that there can be biblical reconciliation and not a harboring of resentment, not a uh, uh, developing of hard hardness in your heart and unforgiveness, because that's leaven that you don't want in your heart. You need to search, uh, search out for reconciliation as soon as possible. That's why Matthew 18 certainly applies. Those principles certainly apply in the marriage um, relationship. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to him, you've won your brother. That's the goal is for reconciliation, for repentance. 
Um, it's perfectly natural for us to be angry when we're sinned against, um, especially by our spouses because of how much we've um, committed to them, because of how uh, close that relationship is and is supposed to be. It can especially hurt us. We can especially become angry by being wronged by them. But as Ephesians 4.26 tells us, that this anger cannot lead us to sin. It cannot lead us to sin. We're to deal with this issue biblically, and biblically, that by that I mean quickly. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And why not? Why can't we just ignore the sin? Why can't we just ignore the wronging? Well, here it tells us, do not give the devil an opportunity. That's what you're doing by not addressing sin in your marriage. You're allowing the devil to gain a foothold. To not seek for reconciliation is to open yourself up and to open up your spouse to the temptations of the devil. It's to ignore marital problems is not to speak. It's to disobey this command. To ignore the marital problem is not to speak the truth in love. And it simply allows the leaven to spread. And so Spurgeon has a quote on this principle of the need to address sins quickly before they spread and develop into more sins and bigger problems. And his, as only Spurgeon can do, he says it's easier to crush the egg than it is to kill the serpent. He's just saying it's easier to deal with problems when they're small right away than after they've grown into something that can do great and more severe damage. So I just thought that was a helpful little nugget by, by Spurgeon there. And Let's deal with our problems as soon as they happen. Um, let's repent quickly and before these things get out of control. Um, the Bible's cardinal rule of communication, uh, J. Adams says, is to, as I've been quoting, uh, what was that from verse 25, to speak the truth. But Ephesians 4.15 says to speak the truth in love. And so that's something I think that's directly relevant into how we're to deal with our marriage problems not only are we to speak the truth to our spouses, even in the case of sin, but we're to speak the truth in love. And so that's the means by which we're to address these issues. We're not to address these issues in harshness or an uncontrolled anger, which is just going to stir up more strife, but we're to come with a, a soft answer in a, in, a loving, in a loving way. So these are just some of the big categories. Hopefully some of these maybe were relevant to your marriages, and, and, and maybe if you haven't even been aware of some of these issues, maybe they ring true to you and you can work on these things. And, and as these things are mentioned in a biblical counseling book, um, these are principles that you're to use to help uh, each other and your friends and your brothers and sisters who come to you with issues. You can biblically um, counsel them into solving these problems Biblically, so in all of these commitments that we have in our marriage, you know, I just wanted to end by saying that the key is really to find your joy in being obedient to Christ in his commands. That's where you're to find your joy. You're not to look for your joy necessarily in the response that you're hoping to get from your spouse. Because like the, the example that Marlene gives, say you're married to an unbeliever and there is no response coming. You're to find your joy in obedience to Christ. And you're to, you're to find your comfort there knowing that you're being obedient to your Savior and you're to do it out of love and gratitude to Him. 
And I thought that it, you, you have to end um, in any discussion on marriage with the way Paul ends his discussion in Ephesians chapter 5 as we think about all of Paul's exposition on the roles in marriage, the roles for the husbands, the roles for the wives. He says, this mystery is great, but all of this I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Yeah. Right? Isn't that, isn't that an amazing mystery? So let's pray and then we'll go to worship. Well, Father, Father, it is indeed our pleasure to serve you in our marriages, Lord. And Father, your word is clear. I thank you for the clarity of your word and telling us how it is that we are to love our wives, Lord, and to honor our husbands in, in all of these things that your scripture tells us to do, Lord. Your word is clear, Lord. We see these things. We understand these things, Lord. We want to do them, Lord. So I pray for your spirit, Lord, that you would give us the grace Give us the ability, Lord, to do what your scriptures command. Lord, our, our spirits are willing, Lord, our flesh is weak. Lord, so have mercy on your people, Lord. Let the marriages, Lord, of Heritage Grace be strong. Let our marriages be pictures of the glorious work that your son has done for us, the church. Lord, that's our desire, Lord. Hear our cry and please grant us these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.